Good evening again. Merry Christmas again. It is such a joy to be with you, and uh, especially to have so many kids. I know that children, normally you would be dismissed already, so I will try to keep this as snappy as possible. There's lots waiting you, I know. To my way of thinking, Christmas is the most subjectively tinged holiday we celebrate. What do I mean by that? We wish each other a Merry Christmas. We talk about having a holly jolly Christmas. We often narrate, on the other hand, how the season is so frenetic and overwhelming, just too much for us. Elvis croons about a blue Christmas, disappointing and lonely for so many. There's not any other holiday, really, that we talk about in this way. We might wish each other a happy Halloween or happy Thanksgiving. And I don't know, an epically American, rambunctious Independence Day or something like that. But Christmas is something more. We emphasize the subjective experience, the qualities that should characterize this season. And that can lead to all kind of confusion, all kind of pressure, right? Am I feeling the right things? What qualities should characterize my experience? I may be jolly, but am I jolly enough? These kind of questions. This evening, in these next few minutes, I'd like to draw our attention to three qualities that characterize Christmas. Not exclusively so, but these three qualities, I think, might serve to draw us further in to the beautiful mystery at the heart of this celebration. And the three qualities that we're going to cover are Christmas kindness, Christmas hate, and Christmas gladness. I suspect one of those might have come as a surprise it's not gladness. And these qualities are drawn tonight from our readings from the Paul's letter to Titus and from the psalm that we just prayed, Psalm 97. So let's jump right in. First, Christmas kindness. Actually, before we do that, let, let's stop to pray. Gracious, almighty God, this night, perhaps above all other nights, we praise you for the ways that you draw near to us. And we ask now that you would draw near by your Holy Spirit. The same spirit that overshadowed Mary, the same spirit that inspired the writing of these words, would you, by that same spirit, draw near to your people and open our eyes and our hearts to see the truth of Christmas, perhaps as never before. In your name we pray, amen. So first, Christmas kindness. Everyone knows you're supposed to be kind at Christmas. Following the example of old St. Nick, we're obliged to give gifts, to share with others, to refrain from cussing each other out on I-35, at least on the 25th. The season for Christmas, we know, is or ought to be characterized by our kindness. But this is not where the reading from Titus this evening directs our attention. These words of the Apostle Paul do come in the midst of this section of ethical instruction, giving practical guidance. But the focus here is not our kindness. Rather, Christmas kindness, the Christmas kindness Paul writes of, is the kindness of the Lord. That's where the reading begins, right? What appears. And that word appears that Paul uses is the same word that's used in Luke chapter 1 to describe Christ's appearance, all the appearing that happens with Christ's birth. So Paul seems to be linking and saying with Jesus, with Jesus coming into the world, the kindness, the love of God is on display in this special way. Divine kindness is made manifest on Christmas. 
at its core, this is what Christmas is about. It's a, a declaration about the condition of the universe, about the state of the world. It's a, a revelation that we might not be able to come to on our own, a revelation that at the very center of things, ruling over them all, is a God of kindness and love. And kindness, kindness is a transformative quality. A few weeks ago, in the midst of the busyness of the season, I was having a particularly busy day, stressful day, not feeling much margin, and I happened to be at Home Depot, and I was rushing around grabbing stuff that I needed. All the other weekend warriors were there. It was busy, it was crowded, it was not a fun time. But I, as I came to the checkout, I saw, oh, there's one self-checkout that's open. I'm gonna rush there. And as I like ran to it and made sure I was like, began to scan my things out, I passed by what I thought was an abandoned shopping cart just left there. And as I began to scan things and do like the kind of process, these two guys out of the corner of my eye started to approach and I thought, oh shoot, that was not an abandoned cart. That was saving their spot in line. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of like immediately felt like things getting like primed in me. I'm like, I'm gonna get it here. This is gonna be an argument. Everyone's stressful. This is a stressful moment. And they approached me. And rather than what I expected, there was just this simple kindness. And they were like, oh, sorry, we shouldn't have left that there. We had a thing to grab. You're good, and I apologize. Very Canadian. Apology, apology, apology. And they were just like, oh, it's cool. It's totally fine. And like five weeks later, I still think about that moment. It was this small, subtle thing, but it kind of changed my day. I remember coming home and being like, that day went way better than I was expecting it. And part of it was this piece. The kindness of these guys, their grace toward me, had this impact on me. So how much more, as we talk about on this night, the divine kindness, the kindness of God our Savior, how much more transformative might that be? The word love that's used in verse 4 here is a word that, uh, from which we get the term philanthropy, the love of humanity, the love of humankind. And Paul seems to be saying that in the birth of this baby, the Son of God, it's revealed that the creator of all things, this holy and living God, loves human beings. He's moved by affection for you and moved to such an extent that he's willing to enter in, right? He doesn't just stand at remove, but on Christmas, we remember that, that God has plunged in. He's entered into the fullness of the weakness, the brokenness of the world, the, the weakness we feel, the grief that we feel, he knows. And he plunged in for this specific purpose, that word philanthropy. It has the connotation of love for people in distress, right? Care for those who need care. And three times in the reading from Titus, Paul uses the language of rescue, right? God, our Savior, the one who saved us. There's rescue involved in this child's coming. I think the challenge many of us face in entering into like the subjective experience of Christmas, right, is entering into its joy, its merriment, its jolliness, is that these kind of qualities don't connect with our lived experience. They seem unreal, or they're real for others, but not for us. Because the reality of our life, the reality of our lives is marked by contradiction, by self-destructive impulses, by intractable problems by evil in all its banal and inescapable forms. The images we're often confronted with at Christmas of the family altogether happy, the abundant feast so well put together, the, the well-ordered, delightful relationships, they can seem like a cruel joke 
because when we're honest about it, we recognize our lives are so often a mess. So often we are in distress. We are the ones in need of rescue. And Paul's language here of saving is a reminder that the child whose birth we celebrate is one who comes as a savior. His birth is this means of rescue, a part of this rescue operation. By his life, by his death, the mess of our lives, far as the curse is found, can be redeemed. Kenyan biblical scholar Samuel Najewa has written about this passage and specifically that word kindness. And he suggests that for many of us, the word kindness can seem soft, vague, ephemeral, not very specific. But he says the term that Paul uses here connotes concrete action. The kindness named here is not just this internal disposition, as though God like wishes you well as he passes you by or, or does no harm. Rather, this is kindness that is made manifest in concrete, tangible action. There's an edge, we might say, to the kindness of God. Najewa's point might be instructive for us as we consider whether we are truly kind or not. Of course, there's a challenge there. But more than that, I think his point about this word is a reminder that the kindness of God is not something you need to call into question. You need not be in doubt about the kindness of God because of what we celebrate tonight and tomorrow. The kindness of God has been rendered tangible, made manifest, declared in history in human form. The gift of this child, born that man no more may die, born himself to die for us, is the clearest proclamation you might need of God as Emmanuel, with us, for us, animated by love, marked by kindness. On the front of your bulletin there, you probably can't see it very well, but there's this painting by this Japanese artist, Hiroshi Tabata. And what I, one particular feature of this painting that I love is that while so much of the painting is a little bit blurry, out of focus, the child, the child is in focus. There's clarity around the child Jesus. And I wonder this evening if the living God is not inviting us in the midst of all that's going on in the world, in the midst of all the mess we've made of our own lives, in the midst of everything that might obscure our vision of who God is, of his character, I wonder if the living God might not be inviting us this night to look again at this child, to look again at Jesus as the clearest, the most in-focused expression of who God is, to see the kindness, the, the philanthropy, the love of God, our Savior. Look to the child. I said a few moments ago that God's kindness has an edge. And that brings us to our second quality this evening, Christmas hate. I don't think there are any Christmas carols about hate. Christmas feels like the one day of the year where there truly is no room for hate. But I don't know if you picked it up, but that word appeared in our psalm, the psalm we just prayed, Psalm 97. In verse 10, there is this call to the people of God to hate what is evil. It's part of this thread through the psalm, this kind of thread of judgment and even battle language. That is not imagery we readily connect with Christmas. 
But the call for the people of God to hate what is evil is in fact related to the call to love all that is good. Walter Brueggemann, the biblical scholar, suggests that the hatred of evil is an aspect of love, the kind of love that God shows through the Old Testament in history that his coming at Christmas demonstrates. The people of God are called to hate what is evil because the living God hates what is evil as an aspect of his goodness, his love, his kindness. It's kindness with an edge. The dream of a white Christmas is one we mostly let go of here in Texas. I think it's like 75 degrees out there tonight. But that image of a fresh blanket of snow persists in many representations of the season. It's this image of freshness, of covering over the ugliness, the dirt of our everyday world. The world is rendered magical, alive with new possibility. Of course, the pristine blanket quickly becomes marred and dirtied. The ugliness of the world returns. Is newness ever really possible? The gift of the child we celebrate tonight and tomorrow brings with him more than the covering of the past. There is, of course, the sense in which through him our sins, our shame, our guilt, like scarlet, are washed away. By him, as Paul says, the water of regeneration is applied to us. By him we are justified. But this child is more than a pristine blanket, more than a fresh start. He comes not simply to cover over what is wrong, what is hateful, but he comes to uproot and to destroy it. He comes, as we'll sing, with healing in his wings, but he comes with hate, too, with hatred for human trafficking and economic exploitation, with hatred for violence and war, with hatred for environmental devastation and human sin. His recompense accompanies him, as Isaiah declares. The child we celebrate, the child who this heavenly army rejoices over, abhors all that would mar his creation, all that would disfigure the image of his glory. He hates what would destroy the image of God in you and in me, that which would keep us from our full flourishing. Think of the passage in Luke 2. That's an army of angels. Earlier in Luke 2, there's this contrast with Caesar Augustus. Even earlier still, Herod himself is threatened by the birth of this child. What that is describing is an invasion. An invasion with this child. The invasion of heaven now entering the earth. And the kingdoms of this world are shaken. Herod is right to see the child as a threat. To see the child as something that needs to be destroyed if the world will continue as it has, if idolatry and exploitation are to continue uninterrupted. This Christmas, we remember that Jesus is this gift, this covering of our sins. But more than that, we look to him as the enemy, the enemy of all that would oppose our flourishing. We look to him as the one who comes to uproot and destroy those things, internal and external, that would mar the image of God in our lives. He comes as a child, but he comes as king of kings, who means to rule and reign, to judge and to destroy all that would oppose his perfect reign in creation, in our lives. This week, I noticed that on the cover of Science Magazine, there was this new pill, this new pill freshly developed in the fight against COVID. 
And the language about what this pill does use the language of attack, the ways that it would assault the different aspects of the virus. And it was this little reminder that true medicine, the medicine that we need, does not simply mask symptoms, but actually destroys that which would kill us, that which would keep us from health and flourishing. Jesus is such medicine. The child we welcome is such medicine. And he hates. He is in a fixed manner opposed to all that would ruin you. And that is good news. We will sing of his meekness, his mildness, but also he is powerful. And he is the one who comes to destroy injustice, evil, to destroy Satan. And his kingdom does not end. Through him, as we welcome his reign, his rule, we have the hope of a transformed life, not just papered over, but made new, right? He's the one who, through whom God gives us the Holy Spirit, this agent of renewal, through whom we are changed. And he is the one who is our greatest ally in opposition of evil, in our own life and in the world. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. And the powers of hell are being broken. In his name, all oppression shall cease. So every action of opposition against injustice, against sin, against the works of hell, is done in partnership with him. The promise tonight, tomorrow, is that you are not alone in your battle against your own sin, against sin in the world. This child is the conquering hero. In him, the victory against those hateful things in the world, things that are worth hating, is won. In his book, The Doorways of the Sea, Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart reflects on the 2004 tsunami that took so many tens of thousands of lives. And he writes of those things, he says of such things, such things that we are right to hate them with a perfect hatred. The gift of this child, the, the revealing that occurs with this child, and the whole of his life, the whole of his ministry, his death, his resurrection, is that God shares in that perfect hatred. And I wonder tonight if the invitation for some of us is to see this Christmas weekend as something more than just a respite, more than just a break from the toil, the trudgery of everyday life, the frustrations of it, but to see in the mystery of what we mark today and tomorrow as the power for something new, the uprooting of those habits, those ways of life that we cannot break on our own, and the further destruction of those things in us and in the world that oppose God's purposes for justice, for peace, for goodness. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head, we pray. And Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see this truth, to live in line with this truth. Because then, then we would be glad. This is the third and final quality of Christmas that is our focus this evening. Christmas gladness. The Lord is king. Let the earth be glad, we prayed in Psalm 97. The outcome of God's kindness, of his opposition to all that would destroy us, is gladness. 
Gladness for us is kind of a tepid term. I remember the movie Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise parsed the difference between the terms happy and glad. Did that person say I'd be happy or did they say I'd be glad? And glad came up wanting in his calculation. The series of terms used in Psalm 97, uh, there's three of them that connect with this idea of gladness. They don't carry any aspect of tepidness, lukewarmness. Rather, they carry with them this explosive, even violent quality. One of the cognates for them relates to the word for revolution, the overthrowing of the old order. These words suggest this unbridled, uncontained response to some good news, a joyful convulsion. The excitement and joy of children, I think, at Christmas gives us a clue of what the psalmist is after here. For most children, there is no attempt to disguise or restrain their response to good news, to a great gift, the promise of something fun. I remember years ago, my brother and I finding a Sega Genesis hidden in our family's dryer on Christmas morning. We both yelled with joy, and my brother ran out of the room, leaving me to struggle with the unwieldy box. I remember being like, get back, and I can't get it out of the dryer. It was this involuntary response, this eruption of gladness. At the end of our reading from Titus, the Apostle Paul names those who are in Christ as having become heirs to the hope of eternal life. Not because of their own righteousness, anything they've done, but because of God's mercy, His kindness, His love. What he's describing is akin to stumbling across a treasure in a field, an unimaginable wealth, opening your dryer one morning to find it full of winning lottery tickets a transformative and undeserved reward, a gift that renders all other problems, all other suffering, real as they might be, in a new and more gladsome light. That is the kind of gift we celebrate and welcome this night, the proof of God's kindness, the revealing of his opposition to all that is hateful, the generosity of God, the gift of eternal life, the gift of his presence in the Spirit resulting in our deep gladness, our sustained happiness. Many of us probably are not the effusive type, and some of us perhaps approach this Christmas with grief, reasons to be discouraged or sad. A friend of mine who knows me well once remarked that celebration doesn't seem to come easily to me. For people such as us, it's perhaps welcome that Paul surrounds our verses this evening with practical, ethical instruction. Our joy, our gladness is made manifest in being gentle, showing courtesy, avoiding divisive quarrels. His encouragement is not toward this perpetually jolly, Pollyanna kind of existence. And there is this deep, sober gladness of knowing, as we do through the story of Christmas, that God knows firsthand what it is to live in a broken and unjust world. There's comfort in that. Even so, the Christmas command of Psalm 97 does challenge me. Rejoice and be glad. The testimony that joyful gladness, explosive happiness has sprung up presses on me the question, does the reality of what we celebrate at Christmas, the joy of Christ's coming, shape my vision, shape my life? What of my subjective experience? Am I jolly enough? Perhaps for people such as us who may find Christmas gladness difficult, 
there is the need to follow tonight the example of Mary, of whom the evangelist Luke tells us treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. Perhaps there is the need this night, this weekend, this season, in all times, to ponder again and again. Or this night, for the very first time, consider the fullness of the gift that is ours in this child, Jesus. To ponder in our hearts, to treasure in our hearts, that we might, like the psalmist commands, like the shepherds do, glorify and praise God. This Christmas, here in this room and online, let every heart prepare him room, him who is the kindness of God made manifest, him who is the king for whom we have waited, him who is the source of great revolutionary gladness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.